Well, good morning, everyone. I hope you're doing well this morning. Um, I'm proud of you for being here and being on time. But the 9.30 gets extra credit, sorry. It's just the way that it goes. It's 9.30. It's actually 8.30, right? You know, so uh, <clears throat> we pastors and we who are in church ministry and those of you who are volunteers understand how hard it is on the spring forward time change Sunday. I, it's my greatest fear. I have nightmares about sleeping in way too late on a Sunday morning. So I'm glad that you're here this morning. Thank you so much for being here. Um, if you have your Bibles, you're going to open up to Genesis, first book of the Bible. Uh, we're going to be in chapter 46 today, Genesis 46. I want to ask you a question this morning, um, and, and you don't have to respond out loud unless you want to. That's fine. Um, but uh, what is your favorite story of all time? I want you to think about that. Think in your mind, your favorite story of all time. You know, like a classic story, like uh, one of the great uh, pieces of literature that we have. Maybe, maybe you are a reader and there's a piece of literature, uh, maybe a book uh, that you like particularly well that's something that, you know, you just really uh, love. Uh, you know, Jane Eyre. <laughs> Guys, that's for the ladies, right? Uh, <laughs> The Old Man in the Sea. All right, there you go, guys. That was one of my favorites growing up. The Old Man in the Sea. Uh, you know, what about uh, Tale of Two Cities or The Lord of the Rings? Tolkien. Love it. Great stories. How about movies? You know, some of you are movie people. You like movies. Think of some of the great movies that you've seen uh, throughout the ages, some of the great movies. Gone with the Wind. Man, I'm a Georgia boy. I got to watch Gone with the Wind. Like, I grew up on that. You know, you have to. It's like requirement. You, know, you got to be a Georgia Bulldogs fan, not a Tech fan, and you got to like Gone with the Wind. <laughs> just want to make that clear. Uh, you know, North by Northwest. I, I just, you know, one of those great old classic movies uh, with this tension. I just love that movie. Cynthia, I watch that a lot. Love those old classic movies. Some of you guys are theater buffs. The Phantom of the Opera saw that. Cynthia and I are celebrating 20 years this June. We saw that on our honeymoon. Uh, Les Mis, my favorite. Oh, man, Les Mis, what a fantastic story. If you're a God follower, Les Mis is such a fantastic story of redemption. Oh, man, it's great. Fiddler on the Roof, one of my favorites that we got to see in New York. And all those are good classic stories. And they have a lot of different things in common. But one of the things that they have in common is that there's some kind of tension. You know, good stories have tension, don't they? There's this tension that exists in a good classic story. And I think the best stories have the tension of good versus evil, don't you think? Like the tension of this, like, hope for the future, yet everything around you is falling apart. <laughs> this, like, thought that, you know, man, <laughs> something's going to happen to come through, but I don't see it now. It is not looking good right now. Some of you are like, that's my life right now. <laughs> A good story has this tension between reality and promise. And I got to tell you, as, as great as some of those authors and screenwriters and playwrights are, that tension that exists that makes a good story a great story is, is something that has existed since the beginning of time. And our God, the God of creation, is the original and ultimate story writer. He's the one who wrote the story of him, God, and man, you and I. And he's the one that created the first tension that we have in a story. You have this awesome, righteous, 
holy God that we just sang about, and you have mankind that in the Garden of Eden, at the first chance, man, we messed it up, didn't we? <laughs> and so you have this tension in the story of God and mankind. You have the promise of, of salvation. You have the promise of like redemption, like this whole sin thing and the fact that we have just messed it up. You and I continuing the story of messing it up because we're part of mankind. We're all sinners. That's what Romans tells us. Paul told us that in Romans, um, that we, we've, we've messed that up um, because of our sin and this relationship between God and man is broken. But there's this hope and there's this promise that if you read his word, regardless of where you are in your faith walk, whether this whole Christianity thing is new or maybe you're still even skeptical, this story, just like many of the classics, has the tension between what is now and what could be in the future, the tension between reality and promise. And God is the ultimate playwright, is the ultimate screenwriter, is the ultimate author. He's the one that created the original tension. But I got to tell you, the fact that he is coming to save, for some of us, for some of you, for myself, with going through life's struggles, man, we have to hang our hat on that. We have to have our feet firmly planted on solid ground, and everything, at, or everything around us, there's nothing that's solid when we look around us, except God and his promises. And that's the story of he will come and save. That's the story of the God-man relationship, but it doesn't begin with us. It begins with the story of God and the Jewish people. He will come and save. Even in the title, think about it for a moment, even in the title, you feel the tension, don't you? Like, there's this problem. There's the reality. What's the reality? Well, there's a reason that we have to be saved in the first place. That's the problem. The promise is right there. He, what's that second word? Will come and save. So right there, just in the title, is the whole story. The problem and the promise. Reality and the hope for the future. It's all right and we see this story being written all throughout from creation all the way to the end of the story, which is yet to come. The story has not ended. I love it. I love it. He will come and save. And so in this series, what we're doing is we're walking through the story of the Jewish people. In the early days, this is really after, this is after creation. It's after Adam and Eve and their sons, and it's, uh, it's uh, before the Exodus. And we're looking at the story of God and the Jewish people and how God uh, came to save the Jewish people from the bondage of slavery. And the reason, I want you to hear this, the reason that we in 2015 as Christ followers, the reason we here at Hilton Head Island Community Church, church and churches all around the, the, the world um, be, are, who are believers in Jesus Christ and followers of Jesus Christ. The reason we look to the Old Testament, look back to these patriarchs, these men that have gone way, way, way before us, the reason that we look at them is because their story, th their struggle between uh, the problem and, and, and the promise is our story. And it's a foretelling of our story, and it lays the foundation for our story. It lays the foundation for God coming to redeem all of mankind. He will come and save. 
And the reason that we are going through this particular series is, is that we're leading up to Easter. We're leading up to that point in the story where we see the salvation of God, the salvation of mankind on God's behalf through his son, Jesus Christ. We see that coming. And we have this hope for the future. We have this hope for when we die and have eternal life because we put our faith in Jesus Christ. That's the story we're looking at. And that's the story of God and the Jewish people. And so last week, we began with Abraham. And right there at the beginning with Abraham, you know, Father Abraham, I'm not going to sing it like I didn't last week, but Father Abraham, he had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. That's the guy we talked about last week because he's really the beginning of the story of, of the Jewish people um, because he was the one that God made a promise to. Last week, we talked about the fact that there are several different covenants or promises contained in Scripture in this, in this Bible that you guys have or maybe you have um, it on a device. I read mine mainly on a device nowadays, but I actually have a, a large print copy of the Bible now because my uh, site, you know, I'm 42 now, so I have to have large print. But anyway, actually, I'm going to call it medium print just to be nice to myself at 42. So we have this word of God um, that tells the story of God um, giving promises to certain people. He gave one to Noah. He gave one to, to uh, uh, Moses. He gave one to Abraham. He gave one to David, and he gives one to us, and that's where we're going to complete the story here in a few weeks. It's awesome. And every time the Jewish people gather together, every year they gather together for the Passover celebration, they come around the table for the Seder Supper, the dinner table for the Seder Supper. And when they, every, every little nuance of the Seder Supper represents some part of the story of God redeeming. And we as a church, I want to invite you to be a part on April the 1st, right here in this room. We're going to transform this room into a large family dinner. And on April the 1st, Wednesday of Holy Week, the, week, uh, the Wednesday before Easter Sunday, we are going to celebrate the Seder Supper. We have a representative for the Jews for Jesus who's going to lead us through that. We've got a couple chefs here in our church that have offered to, to help us make the meal and prepare the food. And if you and your family want to be a part of that, I want to encourage you to go back after we're done. Not right now. Go back after we're done here today to guest services and sign up. We're going to have uh, people buy tables of eight, and you can be a part of that Seder supper, uh, that Passover meal, and you can experience all of the things that the Jewish people experience every year in talking about that salvation and the deliverance of God on behalf of the Jewish people, but also on our behalf. We began with Abraham, and let me just give you a little bit of a background on Abraham. We'll talk a little briefly about Abraham. God gave him a promise. He gave him a covenant. That's what we're calling it. We're calling it a promise. And it was this. He gave uh, Abraham a promise. He promised to make him a great nation. He promised to... Um, bless his name and that other people will be blessed by him and he promised to make his name great it was a threefold promise there were a few other things involved in that but mainly it was like a threefold promise he promised to make him a great nation to make his name great and he said that he will be blessed and other nations will be blessed by his people and so that's all well and good except that when abraham received this promise he was a hundred years old and his wife was 90. And here's the real problem. They had no children. Do you see the dilemma, ladies? Do you see the dilemma? You can shake your head yes. Would you like to have a child at 90 years old? I don't think so. Guys, would you like to have a toddler running around the house when you're 100 years old? 
man, I struggled through those years in my 30s. You know, that was tough. So anyway, I'm not sure that I want that. But Abraham, Abraham was given this promise and even contained right there is this tension, right? There's reality and there's the promise. And they don't seem to be matching up. And we talked last week, the fact that God gave him this promise at first was conditional on Abraham going into the unknown, going towards the promised land that God promised the Jewish people, the nation of Israel, but he didn't tell them where they were going. Abraham just went. And so Abraham, in obedience, went out into the unknown, and for the next 200 plus years, the nation of Israel, which was really just Abraham and his son and his son, Isaac and Jacob, they were nomadic people. They basically traveled from place to place and set up tents, and they kind of wandered. They weren't really wandering, but they kind of just traveled around this area of Canaan, this promised land, but they never settled. God didn't lead them finally there. And so they were a nomadic people. And so the tension is even building. I mean, he doesn't have kids. He's 100. She's 90. They're out in the wilderness. How's this going to happen? This is not going to happen. God's promise is not going to come true. And one day at 90 years old, Sarah has a baby. And his name is, some of you know his name, Isaac. Isaac. And she has this child whose name is Isaac, and he becomes the heir uh, uh, to that covenant. He becomes the new patriarch in the family, and it's Abraham and Isaac and and Jacob. And we're not going to talk about Isaac in this message series. We're going to kind of fast forward to his son, whose name was Jacob. And and Jacob uh, ends up having, um, in this day day and age, they had multiple wives, and so he had He had 12 uh, boys and one girl from several different wives. Uh, So Jacob has 12 sons who ultimately become the 12 tribes of Israel. And so when you hear the 12 tribes of Israel, you, you need to understand that it's Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then his 12 sons. That's where that comes from. And at this point in time, at this point in history, they are nomads. They are in a land that they really didn't know where they were going. God is leading them step by step, but virtually they're out in the unknown. And then things get really bad because there's a famine in the land. Now, earlier in history, um, Jacob's uh, sons sold one of their sons into slavery. His name was, some of you probably know his name, Joseph. His name was Joseph, and Joseph got sold into slavery and ended up in Egypt um, being a slave there in Egypt. Um, How many of you had an older brother that picked on you growing up? Raise your hands. It's church. Let's be honest. How many of you had an older brother? Uh, Okay, raise your hand. Keep it up for a second. You had an older brother. You're like, this guy picked on me. You know, he terrorized me. You did not get sold into slavery. You had it good, okay? Each one of you had your hands raised. I don't care how bad it was, you had it good because they didn't sell you into slavery. Wow, man, these brothers, they were a mess. Oh, man, they were a mess. But as God is sovereign and as his plan was being worked out, as the whole story was being played out, Joseph, the one that was sold into slavery, ends up becoming an important person, a Jewish guy, but an important person in Egypt. And so when he hears about the famine, 
when he hears about his family struggling, when he hears about his father Jacob towards the end of his life and his, all of his knucklehead brothers that sold him into slavery, he actually has compassion and reaches out to them and says, you need to come live in Egypt. But you know what he says? You don't need to, just need to come live in Egypt. You need to come live in the best part of Egypt. You need to come into this country and you need to settle in Goshen, this great place where there was plenty of water and they were able to raise livestock and uh, have produce and they were able to thrive in Goshen. And Joseph called out Jacob and his whole family and they reunite and they finally settle in Egypt. But where the real tension lies in the story we're going to look at today is Jacob making the decision to go into Egypt. And here's why. As they were nomads in this land, in, in and around Canaan, they, were, they faced people um, who were their enemies. They faced uh, terrible tribulation through all this time. But everything that they faced was unknown. With Egypt, they knew what lied ahead. They knew what was in front of them. With going into Egypt, they knew that this nation was a very advanced nation in terms of you know, technology back then or, or uh, 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 academics in terms of military. This was a great nation. This was a force of people to be reckoned with. And Jacob's 11th born son, Joseph, is calling them to seek safety in a land where there's potential danger. Are you getting the picture here? Like if you're Jacob, you're going, really? This is where we're going to find safety? And he has doubts about going there. And that's where we pick up the story today. In fact, look at your notes. Or if you have a device, uh, you can download our app and get the notes that way. Or you can just uh, view on the screens uh, today. I, I want to pick up the story in Genesis 46. One through four, you see this tension that exists, and now we see Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, the son of Isaac, who is experiencing the same type of tension. Take a look. Verse one, so Israel took his journey. Now, let me stop there for a moment. Jacob's name, just a few chapters earlier, was changed to Israel. God did that. It was a special name that he gave Jacob. So when you hear that it was, you know, the, the, the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Jacob and Israel are the same person. Those are the same people. And so when we say the nation of Israel, it's because this was the father that produced the 12 sons. So Israel took his journey with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifice to the God of his father, Isaac. He's giving honor to God for taking care of them during this unknown period of time. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. Then he said, I am God, the God of your father. Do not be, what is that next word you can say it with me? Afraid. Do not be afraid to go down to Egypt for there I will make you into a great nation. Verse four. He says, I myself will go down with you to Egypt. I will also bring you up again. And Joseph's hand, his son, Joseph, his 11th son, 11th born son, shall close your eyes. That, that means Joseph, you're going to see Joseph, and he is actually going to be the one that closes your eyes when you die. At this point in time, Jacob and Joseph had years of being apart. 
because of his knucklehead brother selling, selling him into slavery, okay? So point number one this morning, point number one about this whole story and what we can learn from this story. First of all, we see here that God alleviated Jacob's fear of going into a dangerous land by reminding him of the promise he made with Abraham. He alleviated this grandson's fear of going into this dangerous land that, that contained all the dangers of the known by reminding him of the promises that he made with Abraham. Look, look at verse 3 again. I am the God, the God of your father. Do not be afraid. And the reason that God says that you don't have to be afraid, Jacob, is this next part. For there I will make you into a great nation. It's the same promise that he gave to Abraham, um, you know, probably 180 to 200 years earlier. He, he gave this, this great promise to Abraham. By the way, the reason the time frame is so long is people lived longer in that day. Abraham and Isaac both lived about 150 years. So the timeline is much more spread out than ours, ours is because their lifespan was longer. I'm not sure if I would want to live to 150 years. But anyway, that's a whole other story and a whole other sermon. I, he says, uh, he says there I will make you into a great nation. And he repeats the promise that he gave to Abraham. And here's the principle that we can know. Here's the principle that will help us when we have fear. Our fear is alleviated when we are reminded of God's promises. Our fear is alleviated when we are reminded of God's promises. God has promised, those of you who are Christ followers, those of you who have accepted Jesus Christ as your Savior, He has given you certain promises as a God follower, that you, I want you to hear this, I want you to hear this, you can count on being true. He has given us certain privileges, certain rights. He's also given us responsibilities. That's a sermon for another day. But he's given us certain rights and promises as a God follower that we can count on that will help alleviate whatever fear we are facing. God's promises are true. I'm going to give you three of them today. God's promises, and, and hopefully even these promises themselves, not just the principle, but hopefully working out this principle may be um, helpful for some of you who may be facing fear like I am right now in my life. I'll tell you about that later. Here are three promises that you can count on if you're a God follower. Jeremiah 29 promises that God has a plan for your life. <laughs> so you know when the job like goes really bad or your career gets turned upside down or that business that you started that you were so excited about dissolves. When you are failing students in certain subjects, when relationships go completely awry, when the economy turns and you're left holding the bag that has nothing in it. <laughs> Jeremiah 29 says, God has a plan for your life. That's a promise that you can count on. There's another one. Matthew 11 says that God provides rest for the weary. <sighs> you want me to say that again? I like saying that. God provides rest for those of you who are tired. I needed to hear that. I needed to hear that. Isaiah 40 says, God gives power to those who are weak. 
God's promises will help alleviate the fear we have of what we know we're going into. See, Abraham may have had fear about the unknown. Jacob has fear about the known. He has fear about what he's about ready to go into. And you and I know sometimes that tomorrow may be a dark day. But we can also know that we don't have to fear, not because we muster up enough confidence within within ourselves. That's never worked for me. I don't know about you, by the way. Like when I'm fearful about a situation, I never am able to muster enough confidence to get through the fear. What has worked is resting on the promises of God. Are you with me this morning? His promises are true. We need to be reminded of them when we go through fear. It's interesting because God reminds Jacob of the old promise he gave to Abraham, but he gives him a new promise. It's contained in the second point. Take a look at the second point. God promised to be with Jacob in every step of his journey in Egypt. He promised to be with Jacob in every step of his journey in Egypt. You see, there was the promise about making them into a great nation, but there was also this promise that I will be with you. Take a look at at, at, uh, verse 4. He says, I myself, and I love how this is written. I just love the, the, the writer here and how it's written. I myself will go down with you into Egypt, and I will also, what does the next phrase say? Bring you up again. Isn't that awesome? Because dark days never are up, are they? They're always down, aren't they? Difficulty and suffering, and you never go up. <laughs> You're always going down. And Jacob, going into Egypt, knew what he was going to be faced with. Well, he thought he knew what he was going to be faced with. And God says, I will be with you every step of the way. God is with us when things are good. God is with us when things are horrible. God is with us when our finances are great and when we have no money in the bank. And God is with us when we are on top of the world. And he is with us when we fall into depression. He's with us when we are helpful and he's with us when we're angry. He is with us when we go through times where we flourish as people. He's with us when we go through times where we fail. God is with us. Deuteronomy, I love this verse in Deuteronomy 31, 6. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear or be in dread of them. Talking about the evils of the world. For it is the Lord your God who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. And I know what some of you are saying because I've asked this question recently in my life. I know God is with me, but I sure am doubting it right now. And you know what? That's why God does not give us the privilege of knowing the future. Am I right? Because if we knew the future, we would never step out in the confidence of God when we know what danger awaits us. That's why he doesn't give us the privilege of knowing what the future holds. Because I don't know about you, but I would never do any, anything great for him. I, I would do nothing great for him. I would never be able to face my fears if I knew what tomorrow held. But that's also why God allows us to look back in time, because we can see his provision. We can see him working. Be strong and courageous. Do not fear, for it is the Lord your God who's with you. And the principle is this. Even during our darkest days, God will not abandon us. He will not abandon us. And then we come to the biggest picture of the story in this particular story of Jacob. And that is, is 
the fact that the Jewish people moved into Egypt and began to multiply. Point number three, the Jewish people quickly multiplied when they entered Egypt, beginning the fulfillment of one of God's promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They move into Goshen, and the total number of all of the people that were part of Abraham's family that, that has really existed for roughly 200 years, so in a 200-year period of time, they total 70. Take a look at Genesis 46, 26 through 27. By the way, everything from verse 4 through verse 26 is a list of all those people. Great reading, by the way. Okay, anyway. <laughs> I'll have to answer for that one day, I'm sure, to God. Anyway, verse 26 and 27. It is good reading. It is very important. And listen, honestly, I'm so glad that God included that because that can give us the security and, and, and the reality to understand that there were actually 70 people. They were actually named. Anyway, I'm just trying to make up for what I just said. Anyway, verse 26. I love this. <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> All the persons belonging to Jacob who came into Egypt, who were his own descendants, not including Jacob's sons' wives, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were how many? Two. Okay. All the persons of the house of Jacob who came into Egypt were how many? Seventy. Verse 27 says, all the sons of Jacob that came into Egypt, total, this is everybody, this is like their, their friends, their slaves, people they might have picked up on the way, who knows, like it just come on with us, 70 people. God promised to make them into a great nation. Is 70 people a great nation? Would you be fearful to battle an army of 70? Not so much. This is not a great nation yet, folks, right? So there's tension still in the story. There's this tension between what is reality and what the promise is. They are not yet a great nation, but look what happens. If you flip over a few chapters to Exodus chapter 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was what? Filled with them. These people were everywhere. They moved into Egypt and they multiplied. Maybe they just needed to settle down, but they multiplied in this period of time. And in 400 years, if we look at numbers and we look at several different passages we're not going to take the time to do today, over 400 years, they come into Egypt, 70, and they leave 400 years later, two and a half million people across the Red Sea. And then incredible. God's promises came true, didn't it? Didn't look like it at this point in time, did it? 70 were produced in 200 years. Two and a half million in 400 years. That's awesome. God's promises are true. God told Abraham to go and he went. God told Jacob to go and he went. And the principle is this, in this is that we join in the fulfillment of God's promises when we are faithful in our obedience and persevering in our trust. 
when we are faithful in our obedience and persevering in our trust. Don't you think that at some point in time, Abraham or his son Isaac or his grandson Jacob, who are the patriarchs of this group, this ragtag group of people that were just nomads living from place to place, don't you think at some point in time someone like probably said, hey, can we just go back to like a city somewhere? I mean, a city would be awesome right now, you know showers, hot water, I'm probably not back then, but aqueducts, you know, horses, like that would be great compared to what we're going through right now. But they were faithful and they were obedient. And because of that, God's promise began to be fulfilled in their life. And so all of a sudden we have a break in the tension, don't we? There's no longer a problem because God's promise is being fulfilled. But what if, what if Jacob had let his fear stop him from going to Egypt? What if he had said no? What if Isaac had said no? What if Abraham had said no to God? What would have happened? We have no idea what would have happened, but we say no all the time to God, don't we? We have limits on our obedience. And so my question for you today is what's keeping you from expecting God's promises to be fulfilled? What's keeping you from expecting God's promises to be fulfilled? I would imagine for a lot of you, perhaps most of you, it's the thing that was potentially keeping Jacob from going into Egypt, and that is fear. Um, Egypt, for Jacob and for Isaac and for Abraham and for the Jewish people, it represented fear. It represented danger, and some of you today are limiting what God can do in your life, and not just in your service, but in your whole life, because of this thing called fear. And I understand what that is like, and God does too, more importantly. On December uh, 26th of 2014, just a few months ago, uh, my mom and dad traveled from Tampa to Hilton Head to see our family uh, for Christmas, and they stayed for two days, and we had an awesome time. We had a great time. Um, we kind of noticed that my mom wasn't feeling very well, uh, that she didn't eat a lot while she was there. And about a week later, my dad called. They had gone back home to Tampa, and my dad had called and said, hey, I'm really concerned. Your mom cannot eat anything. She's just not eating anything. She's lost about 10 pounds. Well, fast forward six weeks later, she had lost 30-plus pounds, and something was obviously wrong. And the doctors could not figure out what was wrong. Here's a 10 actually 12-year breast cancer survivor. She's lived a healthy life. She's 68 years old. What is going on? Why is she losing all this weight? Why is she diminishing in her health and so suddenly? Well, on February 11th, I was here at church. We were actually doing a bunch of the construction over there. I was covered in um, drywall dust. We were finishing up some things. And I got a call from my dad. And he said, well, it's back. The cancer's back. And it's metastasized and it's spread and it's everywhere. She had cancer back in her breast, she had cancer in her bones, she had cancer in her pelvis and her spine. And he said, and the thing I'm most fearful of, he told me through his tears, is, is that he was taking his high school sweetheart the next day on Thursday, February 12th, to have a brain scan to see if it had spread to her brain. And I got the call that night that she had two tumors and that the cancer had spread to her brain. Excuse me, I'm sorry. And um, in that moment, man, I was scared. I was scared. 
There's my mom, 68. She's been healthy. She's been a rock for me. She prayed for my salvation. And uh, the cancer had spread to her brain. And my dad um, asked if I could come down as soon as possible. And so I got on a plane the next day and flew to Tampa. And my sister drove quickly to Tampa um, to be with my parents. And Cynthia and the kids, we went and visited her last week. And the doctors say that she's got six months to live, but she's failing fast. And it looks like it's going to be very, very quick. But I want to tell you something. I remember um, flying into that airport. <clears throat> and we flew past the airport like you sometimes do. And um, we flew past the Tampa, and it was a beautiful day, past that Tampa airport. And I looked down, and I saw Tampa Bay. And I thought, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this. I'm not strong enough for this. I can't help my dad. He's the rock, not me. He's the man, not me. But he wants our help. He wants me and my sister. I'm the oldest of me and my sister. He wants our help. I can't do this. I don't want to do this. I want to land, and I want to get on the next plane back here, and I want everything to be fine. Why is this going on? I don't understand this. And that Tampa Bay airport will forever be my Egypt in this crisis in my life right now, in our family's life. Because I looked down there, and I was just overcome with fear. But you know what? God's promises are true. They're true. And you may be facing a fear like our family's facing right now of a loved one who's way too young to die, way too young to die. Or you may be fearing um, a financial crisis that is insurmountable. Or you may be facing a relational situation that is completely unwanted. Or you may be facing the failure of a business or academics and I got to tell you today that if we don't give our fears to God, not based on anything that we can muster up, based on his promises, if we don't do that, we won't take one step in front of the other and trust him in dangerous territory. He promises to be with us. He doesn't promise that the journey is going to be perfect, does he? I'm learning that lesson in a harsh way right now. I want to challenge those of you who are with me, who are learning it in maybe a different way in your life. Let's together as a church say we're going to be strong, not on our own power, not on each other's power, not on some unknown power, but on the promises of God based on who he is, is what we talked about last week, and the promises that he has made. And let's expect great things from him. Even if we know tomorrow is going to be dark. Let's move forward and take one step forward, trusting on his promises. Father God, thank you so much for your people and the story of you delivering them from Egypt. And God, we're just kind of really entering almost the beginning of the story right now. And God, there is this tension, but as we leave the story today, there is a promise um, or there is a, a, there's some light that your promises are being fulfilled. And God, I pray for um, those who are in here today, um, who they came in this room and they're overcome with fear because tomorrow is dangerous. They're overcome with anxiety because that meeting that they have later this week is filled with potential danger. 
God, they know that a dark storm is rising and it's there on the horizon and they can see it. And fear has overtaken them, just like fear for Jacob was taking that step towards Egypt. But he did it. And even though it was a difficult, suffering-filled 400 years, you blessed him for it. And God, I thank you while you say your promise is not to make things perfect for us on this side of heaven, that you give us the hope and the promise for tomorrow, that when we die, if we accept you as our Savior, we can have eternity with you. God, I'm thankful that Susan Cullen, my 68-year-old mom, when she was a teenager, accepted you as her Savior, and that one day she's going to see your face. And God, we thank you for those types of promises. God, I pray that you would bring rest to the weary. God, that you would bring strength to the weak. And God, I pray that as a church, as we move out into the future, that we stand strong on your promises, that we are secure in the fact that you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And God, today we sing about that and we give you the praise and the glory and the honor for what you're doing. We thank you that you are God who came to save. In Jesus' name I pray.